Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I am so glad that you're able to join me on uh, this week's episode and glad that we get to be together and just study God's Word together. I was thinking the other day about uh, just letting you in on maybe a little bit more of the inside track on my life and one of the things a lot of people don't know is that I have coached soccer for a long time. I coached my daughter for eight or nine years and and so my daughter had been asking for the last couple of years, hey, Dad, we should coach soccer together. And so my daughter and I are coaching an eight- and nine-year-old girls' soccer team uh, this fall, and then we'll coach again in the spring the same girls. And so the girls are learning. They're growing. We're having a good time, and uh, our team is doing pretty well. We're 5-1 and one right now, and the girls keep improving and getting better. And more than the wins and losses is how they're winning. They're learning soccer. They're, they're starting to play some pretty good soccer. So it's a lot of fun, and it's particularly fun to get to do that with my daughter. Also, I just wanted to say thank you to each and every one of you who support the Bible in life. Uh, this podcast is really made possible by listeners like you who decide, man, I really value what I'm getting out of this, and I want to help support the show. And uh, doing this full-time. And so in order for me to continue to make online Bible teaching resources, whether it's the courses that I have on my website uh, or whether it's the free resources like this podcast and some of the things I've put out on my YouTube channel, I really depend on listeners like you to support the show. So thank you to each and every one of you who are either patrons through my Patreon page or who support through the donate button on my website. Thanks a ton. It means the world to me. And if you're not supporting the show, but you would like to, I will have the links to that down in the notes below. You can go to my Patreon page, become a patron. There's a few free perks for you there if you support the show that way. Or you could support through World Family Mission, which is what the donate button on my website goes through. And uh, both of those are ways that you can help make uh, this show and other uh, resources for me possible online. So, Thanks again for everyone who has done that. And if you want to jump in, just check out the notes below. All right, we are in a series where we're actually answering questions that listeners of the podcast have sent in. And and in this episode, I want to take up two questions that were sent in by a listener whose name is Sally. And she asked a couple questions. And the first one has to do with uh, the cry of Jesus on the cross as he's being crucified, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel. And that cry is actually the first line of Psalm 22, 22 verse 1. And so Sally asked the question, do you think God had actually forsaken Jesus? Or was Jesus delivering a last message to his Jewish listeners who knew how the psalm ended, that the psalm ended with vindication by God for the sufferer in the psalm. Uh, and uh, it's a really great question because it forces us to think through what's really going on both in Jesus' heart, mind, and soul, what's going on uh, between him and God. And and then it's also important for us just to think through studying the scriptures and and studying Old Testament texts and New Testament contexts. And so this these words of Jesus, as I mentioned, come from Psalm 22, and whenever you find an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it's terribly important that we go back and read the, the original context of that, and we want to hear it in its original context before we figure out what's going on in the, uh, the New Testament context. And so um, Psalm 22 is a psalm uh, about a righteous sufferer. The psalmist is writing about his experience of feeling abandoned by God, rejected by God, forsaken by God, as he's suffering um, 
some sort of hardship and difficulty at the hands of people who are against him and against God. And so the psalm begins really quite um, dark, quite sad, sorrowful with this cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And carries on in this lament um, about his situation and his circumstances, his lament towards God who who has abandoned him. And yet the second half of the psalm then turns and God vindicates the psalmist and he is restored and all of that. And so Sally's question is, do you think God had really forsaken Jesus or was he quoting this psalm to basically say, look, I may be suffering now, but you know how the psalm ends. I know how the psalm ends and God's going to vindicate me. And I guess my initial answer to that question is, I don't know that we need to choose between the two. I, I think it could be a little bit of both, right? Like um, there certainly is a a sense in which Jesus knows this psalm. He doesn't just know the first verse. He knows the whole psalm. He knows how it ends. He has faith and hope in God's vindication of him, just like uh, the psalm describes. And yet at the same time, um, is there any reason to think that that means he wasn't forsaken? And so maybe it's a little bit of both. And yet, even if it does deliver a kind of an ultimate message of hope and triumph, this cry itself is really one of agony and heartache and suffering and hurt. And so it's appropriate for us to make sure we hear it in that way. In fact, Grant Osborne, in his commentary on Matthew's gospel, writes these words, helping us understand maybe the kind of the narrative flow, the narrative context of Jesus' words. Listen to what Grant Osborne writes. He writes, This cry is one of agony and hardly one of triumph. It culminates a major theme in Jesus' passion narrative in which Jesus is abandoned by his disciples, he's abandoned by Peter, he's condemned by the high court of his own people, and taunted by his enemies, first the Roman soldiers and then the Jewish people, the leaders, and the criminals crucified with him. Jesus stands alone forsaken by all, and now he feels forsaken by his Father. If Jesus meant for this cry as a cry of faith and victory, he would not have quoted only the first verse of this psalm. And so I, I think maybe it is a little bit of both, but I think we need to hear it in its, its full context as Grant Osborne points out that this really is a cry of agony and, and heartache and suffering, not so much a cry of triumph. Uh, Jesus has experienced all this forsakenness, and now at the climactic moment, he feels forsaken by his Father. And personally, I think in some sense, Jesus was forsaken. And I don't know how all that plays out in, you know, the relationship amongst the members of the Trinity, the, the metaphysics of the divine nature, if you will. I think we need to be content with some level of mystery on that. And yet, I think it's appropriate to say in some way or, or another, there was a forsakenness between God the Father and God the Son in this moment of Jesus' crucifixion. And I, I think that because of passages like these from uh, Paul's writings, Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes these words. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's that line in the middle, having become a curse for us. There was something in this moment where he, he became a curse, and he absorbed the curse of the law. He took it upon himself, and he experienced this, 
this rejection, this cursing uh, from God by, by virtue of his crucifixion. Or again, more starkly, even than that one is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says this, God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, catch this phrase, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice that middle phrase again, to be sin. Uh, there was something going on in, in Jesus on the cross where he was becoming a curse. He became sin on our behalf. And in that sense, he's absorbing um, the, the forsakenness of being cursed, the forsakenness of, of God's wrath, the forsakenness of becoming sin. John Calvin in his Institutes writes this. He says that uh, Jesus bore in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and lost man. And he had never experienced that before. He had never experienced anything. That, that whole, the, the torments of a, being a condemned and lost man, that curse from God of, of violating God's law, that, that experience of separation that sin brings in a relationship between a human being and God. Jesus had never experienced that before. And in this moment, he in some sense and in some way, I think, experienced that. And that is what leads to the sense of forsakenness that he cries out about here at the climactic moment of his crucifixion. Um, but at the same time, I don't believe that forsakenness was total or could be total because of how the crucifixion accounts and Jesus' own experience of that crucifixion ends. It, at the very culminating moment of his crucifixion, as he, as he dies, he, he says these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he noticed he still refers to God as his Father. And so... Maybe due to the hope of the psalm, maybe due to whatever, Jesus still knows God as Father. And so I think the forsakenness is real, and yet it's not total because Jesus knows God as Father, even in that moment while he's being crucified. And so there was an agony in that experience, unlike any human has ever experienced, and unknown to Jesus before this moment. But even in the that moment, Jesus has this father-son relationship with God that is solid. And even the original context of Psalm 22, it's a cry of faith and hope, and I think so too for Jesus. He is forsaken, but not forgotten and not totally abandoned. And so it's a cry of faith and hope. And thus, in his agony, Jesus can commit his spirit in trust to God his Father, and in hope look forward to uh, the joy that is set before him, as the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12. Now, the second question that Sally asked um, is a well-known theological issue, been debated for a long time, and that's the question of once saved, always saved, or sometimes called eternal security. And Sally was wondering, what's my opinion on that? What do I think about that? And uh, I understand the question, and I understand the reason behind the question. In fact, people have said to me, people who aren't so sure they believe in eternal security, have said to me, well, you know, I'm not so sure I buy eternal security because that just means you can live however you want and it doesn't matter. And 
you're still going to be saved anyhow. I always think of a fellow by the name of Ted that I knew when I was growing up who uh, Ted was a, a womanizer, a uh, regular bar hopper, and a drunkard. Uh, he's, he is the person who first introduced me to pornography. So Ted was not the most moral of guys, and yet um, at one point in a conversation I was having with Ted when uh, I was in high school and he was in his 20s, Ted was like, oh no, I'm good, I'm good. I, I know I'm saved because I went forward at one of those things and I prayed that prayer and I'm all good. Well, that's a perversion of once saved, always saved. That's just not really how it was ever intended to be taken. In fact, the formal name, the classic name for once saved, always saved is perseverance of the saints. It, it Because it has to do with persevering to the end in faithfulness. And so formally, classically, once saved, always saved has to do with perseverance of the saints, persevering in faithfulness to the end. Um, now, having said all of that, the real, the real heart of the issue, the tension in this question, and the tension in this well-known theological debate is trying to honor two things, two biblical truths that are really important. The first is honoring God's power and sovereignty. God is sovereign. He's in charge. If God has saved someone, he's not going to fail, right? Like God is powerful. God is sovereign. So trying to honor that, at the same time, trying to honor human choice and human responsibility. Humans do have real choices, make real choices. They're, they're, they have that freedom of choice for a reason, and they really are responsible for the choices they made. And the tension in this theological issue is that tension between honoring God's power and sovereignty and honoring human choice and responsibility. And here's kind of what I think. Uh, personally, I think the Bible seems to make it clear that people who once knew God and experienced his grace can turn away from it or can drift away from it. The book of Hebrews is noteworthy in this regard. If you read Hebrews, you'll come across passages repeatedly throughout that letter where it, it makes this point. People who, to all appearances, know God and experience His grace, well, they can turn away from it. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about uh, drifting from the, the hope that we have in Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that uh, lifts off all these experiences of grace. They've experienced all the, the fruit of God's grace, and they've, ex they've tasted the goodness of the life to come. And that, they I mean, it lists off all these things that make it obvious that the author of Hebrews is saying, man, they've experienced all the good things that God has to offer in Christ, and yet they turn away from it. They fall away from it. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 says that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. So the book of Hebrews is noteworthy in this regard, uh, saying that people who knew God and experienced His grace can drift away from it, can turn away from it, can reject it at some point. And not only that, you even hear some of the same things in uh, Paul's writings. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says this. He says, uh, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, uh, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. And then here's the phrase I want you to hear. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established, he'll present you before him holy and blameless if indeed you continue in the faith, there's this tension. Uh, 
He wants to present you. That's the goal. That's the plan. But you need to continue in the faith. Or Galatians chapter 5, uh, the whole context of Galatians is about believers turning towards uh, back to the Mosaic law. They were, they were Gentiles, and now they're turning to the Mosaic law. And Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5, I testify again to you, uh, to every man who receives circumcision, in other words, converts to Judaism and adds Moses to their faith in Jesus. That's the context of Galatians. Every man who receives circumcision, that he's under obligation to keep the whole Old Testament law. Then he writes, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. And so passages like this uh, seem to make it pretty clear that people who knew God, knew Christ, can in some sense turn away from that, fall away from that. Now, the, the struggle is, well, how does that all work out then in, in God's, again, divine nature, in the metaphysics of the divine nature? And I don't know, and I think we have to be content with, a, again, a little level of mystery there. Does that mean God has a re- eraser in the, in the book of life? I don't think so, all right? I don't really know what that means. It just seems like you have passages like this who seem to suggest that people who... Um, once knew God and experienced his grace, can in some way fall away. Now, um, this, in my understanding, my experience, this is where Bible teachers who believe in once saved, always saved, and Bible teachers who don't believe in once saved, always saved, actually come together in agreement. And I wish sometimes we would emphasize our agreement more than our disagreement, um, and this is where I think is a point of agreement. Like, as I said, Ted, well, that was a perversion of once saved, always saved. You can't live however you want, right? You can't profess faith in Jesus and then just live however you want for the rest of your life and still be saved. Um, and so once saved, always saved doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you can live however you want and still be saved. And that's why I say this is where Bible teachers who believe that, and Bible teachers who don't, come together. You have to remain faithful to Jesus till the end in both schools of thought. Once saved, always saved. Not once saved, always saved. Both are saying, no, if you're part of the elect, you will be faithful to the end. And that's Paul's point in Colossians 1. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established. Um, you, you can't accept circumcision and add Moses to it and be faithful to the end. He's saying you have to be faithful to the end. Um, and so those who are faithful to the end, they are really God's elect and they're saved. And so teachers who believe in perseverance of the saints say this. They say, well, those who didn't stay faithful to the end, they looked like Christians, but because they didn't endure, they were never really saved. And then Bible teachers who don't believe in once saved, always saved say, well, who am I to say they were never saved in the first place? But both believe that the saved, the elect, are faithful and bear fruit to the end. And that's where they come together. So in practice, if we're just being honest, in practice, more often than not, it works out largely the same. I've met people in churches who taught eternal security who were very insecure about whether or not they were part of the elect. And they wanted to work really hard to make sure that they were faithful to the end. And they had this sense of angst, am I really part of the elect? And I've met people in churches who didn't teach eternal security that suffered that same insecurity. And that's unfortunate because pastorally, 
I want people to experience the biblical understanding that in Christ, in Christ, we are safe and secure. I think the uh, Apostle Peter puts it very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this, he says that uh, you have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, catch this next phrase, reserved in heaven for you. God's layaway plan, it's reserved in heaven for you. Here, here it is, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be real, revealed in the last time. Notice that, verse 5, he, uh, 1 Peter 1, 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith. God's power and God's sovereignty, human responsibility, protected by God's power through human faith. That, I think, is how we need to understand it. And so, as we not live perfectly, we don't obey perfectly, but through our faith, our, our, our trusting, loyal allegiance to God in Christ, we are protected by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, and thus our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. There's security there, my friends. There is security. Or 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, catch this, so that you may know you have eternal life. Like, we can know and be assured that we have eternal life. Again, not because of our perfect obedience, not because of our perfect faithfulness, but because we believe in the name of the Son of God. And so we're protected by our faith. And so the key thing is, is simply trusting. Simply trusting. And so I, I'm not a fan of the phrase once saved, always saved. Uh, I'm not a fan of the phrase eternal security. Um, but I want to avoid the opposite and equal danger, and that is eternal insecurity. I don't think both of those are biblical. I think the biblical idea is that uh, we are simply trusting God, and therefore we are justified by virtue of our faith in Jesus, and we can know, therefore, that and be assured of our salvation because of that. Um, one of my favorite texts on that is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and that highlights the peace we have with God and the grace we stand in it. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Justified means declared right. It's to be given a favorable verdict. So picture the judgment day and then just say, whatever judgment we're going to be given in, at the, the final day, it has been already declared on our behalf today in the present, and it's a favorable verdict. We're, we're given a favorable verdict, and we're put in a right relationship with God, having been justified by faith, by our trust in God. Notice, we have peace with God. Not we should have, we will have, we have. Statement of fact, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith. Again, notice that trust, our faith in him, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in a sphere of grace. We stand in an atmosphere of grace, in this gracious, favorable, kind-hearted relationship with God. And he looks on us with favor simply because of what Jesus has done and our trust in him. And so, my friends, it's not eternal insecurity. We shouldn't constantly have this angst. Am I part of the elect? Am I part of the elect? Am I going to be saved? 
we have confidence and we have peace and we stand in grace because of what God accomplished for us through Jesus. And so I don't believe in eternal insecurity. I'm not a fan of the phrase eternal security. I'm a fan of we are protected by the power of God through faith. As Peter writes in 1 Peter, we are protected secure by the power of God through faith. And so, as long as our faith is in Jesus, we are protected by God's power. And that's really what the author of Hebrews is getting at in some of those those passages that Hebrews talks about. It's talking about turning your back on Jesus, rejecting Jesus, walking away from Jesus. And however that plays out in the divine nature, I don't totally know. I don't totally get it. I just know uh, and agree with this simple idea that it's those who endure to the end who are saved. And they endure not in perfect per- perfection, not in complete total obedience. They endure in faith and faithfulness to the end, trusting God in Christ to rescue, redeem, and save them. So that's my understanding of that biblical issue, that theological topic right there. Hey, thanks for sending in these questions. If, if any of you still have some questions, feel free to email me, and I will work some of those in at various times on, on the podcast. Uh, we're going to continue this series over the next couple weeks and continue to answer some listeners' questions. So if you have ever wrestled with how to study the Bible and like, man, I want to know more about how to dig into these texts, and I really want to learn the Bible and understand the Bible myself, uh, if you're eager to know more or if you've ever felt like, man, I go to Bible study and I, I'm afraid to open my mouth because I, I don't hardly know anything and everyone seems to know so much. If you've ever felt that way, I would love to help you out. I've got a little free guide on my website. Um, it's just a how to study the Bible and like seven steps to understanding and applying the Bible. I would love to help you out. Totally free. I'll put a link to that down in the notes below. and You can check that out. And it'll really help you begin to dig into the text of Scripture in its own context, in its historical context, in its theological context, so you can really understand what God is trying to say to you through His Word. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to the Bible and Life podcast. I hope you have a blessed week as you walk by faith in Jesus. God bless you guys. Take care, and we'll talk again soon.